Let's pray. Father, we've come into your house. We desire your presence. Help us to discern the glory of who you are, the beauty, the blessings, the health, and the vitality that you bring to person, relationships, families, and churches, societies, and businesses. I pray, Lord, give us comfort. And when discomforted, may we turn to you. I pray now, Lord, anoint us with hearts, ears, eyes, and tongues. And may we be able to discern your guidance through the word now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're looking at Daniel chapter 5. You've heard it in our scripture reading. And while we will make reference to it, so I encourage you to turn to it now, I will not reread the chapter. This becomes the last chapter of the story of the nation, the empire of Babylon. There's a few things you need to know about this dynasty before we delve into the story, and that is that for most of its existence, at least the biblical portion of it, it was ruled by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Most of you are aware of this. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 B.C. That means... From the time that he first conquered Jerusalem until his death, he reigned about 44 years. So most of Daniel's exile in Babylon was under this king's leadership. That means also there's only 23 years left of this dynasty, which was the head of gold. Amazing. The greatest nation to ever exist on the face of the planet only has 23 years of existence after its most preeminent king. It makes me think of the fact that it only takes really one generation to ruin that which previous generations have built up with prayers, sweat, and effort. Around 550 B.C., so 12 years after uh, Nebuchadnezzar has died, there's been a number of little kings or attempted kings and they, they had their kingship for a short period of time. But there is one that rises to the surface. His name is Nabonidus. He marries the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar named Nidocris. And he becomes the legitimate king of Babylon. Now, he goes on a campaign in 550 B.C., 12 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's in Palestine and he becomes ill. While he's ill in Palestine, he summons an unknown character in history by the name of Belshazzar. You need to know that prior to 1854, the critics of the Bible said that Belshazzar was a made-up person in the Scriptures. He wasn't found in recorded history outside the Scripture. But in 1850, no, not in 1850, in 550 B.C., Nabonidus summons his son, to the land of Lebanon, where he turns over the leadership of the kingdom to this Belshazzar. So now we have a convalescing Nabonidus who's married to the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And the son, Belshazzar, is summoned because Nabonidus is ill. We now have a co-regency. We have two people that hold a measure of control. Now, this is why you'll see in the chapter that Belshazzar offers to make Daniel the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, 
this story is a very interesting one. Nabonidus goes on to recover. He goes down to Arabia and does some conquering. And while he's there, he conquers the city of Tima. And he must love the climate and he must love the ease of responsibility, not managing this large kingdom because Belshazzar is left in Babylon to run the show. And thus we come up to the story of Daniel chapter 5. A young king. It's important for you to understand he is immature in many ways. And we're going to see that immaturity come out in Daniel chapter 5. And by the way, as I said in the first service, I want to encourage you, if you'd like to capture a good history of this, the new Andrew's uh, commentary, the one volume Old Testament commentary, does a very excellent job on it. So I highly encourage you to have this book in your library. Belshazzar is not an invention of the Bible. Not only were the, the uh, text that mentioned his name found in 1854, but in 1882, the Nabonidus Chronicles are found, and Belshazzar's story, or at least Nabonidus's story that involves the dynamics of Belshazzar are discovered. Also, when you come in the reading of Daniel chapter 5, you need to remember that while Belshazzar, uh, the, the terminology between Belshazzar and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as father, this term that's used in the Greek is there for a reason. It's there because there is no term for grandfather. As a matter of fact, uh, the idea of grandfather ancestor is commonly caught up in the use of the term father. So let's do a little bit of looking this morning at the story of Daniel's postmodern generation and how he related to it. 23 years after his death, here we are, enter Belshazzar's party. But before we do that, turn to the book of Isaiah, hold your hand in Daniel 5, and turn back to the book of Isaiah chapter 3, and I want to show you that God had prophesied this trauma in general, not only for Daniel's day, and not only for all of those citizens of the Babylonian kingdom, but for all that should find themselves dealing with dynamics of immaturity. In Isaiah chapter 3, the subtitle in my Bible says, God will remove the leaders. It says in chapter 3 of Isaiah verse 1, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah, both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan and the skilled enchanter. And I will make mere lads their princes and capricious children will rule over them and people will be oppressed, each one by another, each one by his neighbor." The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. This is a major text this morning for this message. As we proceed, you'll see why. So here we are, the young king, Daniel chapter 5. Let's look at a few of the verses there and figure out what's going on. The year is 539 B.C. You need to know as we start the chapter that the Medes and the Persians are camped outside the city. And they're wanting in. And they're planning to get in. Most of them do not understand that in Isaiah 45, chapter 1, Cyrus, their leader, has already been prophesied as the anointed deliverer of God's people in the reign of Babylon and the conqueror of this head of gold. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels 
which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone, and suddenly everything changes. In this story, there is no doubt that intoxication plays a very significant role. If you have any doubt about the Bible's messaging on keeping your senses clear and your judgment sharp, this story should bring it into a reiterated, reinforced focus. There has never been a more critical age, as I will suggest to you, that the time frame of Daniel 5 mirrors our time frame painfully. We're living in an age in which wealth and privilege and assumed lies, the lies of inconquerability, the lies of perpetuity of our freedoms, suggest that we can party on just like everybody else. But the storyline of Daniel chapter 5 is a painful storyline built around ignorance and blindness. When the handwriting appears on the wall and those, fire, those fiery letters, those fiery words, four of them, all of a sudden the Bible says that Belshazzar loses the strength in his legs. This is really a euphemism for incontinence. It is such a frightening moment for this man that the embarrassment of embarrassment is upon him and perhaps the whole rest of the group, except for one thing, the doom of potential judgment is hanging over all of them. In come the wise men for their third turn at being unable to deliver any kind of meaningful message about the secrets of heaven, and out they go. The queen mother, probably Nidicris herself, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, is, come, is brought into or hears the rumors of the trauma in the party zone, and she declares there is a man, his name is Daniel. When Daniel comes into the scene, you remember his verbiage, he basically says, what you've done is exceptionally unacceptable because you know the story of your father who acknowledged the true God of heaven. As a matter of fact, in, the, in Patriarchs and or Prophets and Kings, Ellen White will explain that Belshazzar grew up in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and he was familiar with privilege and the storyline of Babylonian history. So there's something about Daniel chapter 5 that is particularly apropos for us, and that is this, that the storyline, it will follow this simple storyline. It will go from ignorance to arrogance to defiance and then judgment. So let's just keep this in mind. It'll start out with ignorance. It will move to arrogance. It will end in defiance. And then God will intervene and bring it all down. Now, if you think we're in any different situation in modern America now, I'd like for you to stop and think again. Belshazzar was aware of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had lost his mind for seven years. Belshazzar was aware of the testimony of Daniel chapter 4. But Belshazzar found it convenient to set it all aside and to operate in a new zone of information, you might say his own truth. These elements, these inconvenient elements of the previous generations needed to be moved out of the way. There was a blindness that developed in this new narrative that set him up 
for a last moment of terror in which God's message declares the game's up, the party's over. Now, we are living in a similar age of ignorance. Now, I'm going to ask you a question just to see if, if I can establish my point. I don't want anybody to say anything, but I want you to ask yourself, do any of you know that this year is an anniversary year for a significant moment in American history? Could I see hands? Do any of you know that it is? Nobody knows that it is. Okay. I find this particularly interesting. On December 18, 400 years ago, something very significant to American history happened. Oh, it just has to do with this little boat called the Mayflower and where it showed up and the fact that, you know, half of the people were going to die in the first year. You see, four centuries ago, in a few weeks, those who were seeking religious liberty the real storyline of America, landed here. How come none of you know that? You know, uh, three days ago, I wouldn't have known it either. Fortunately, I had a pastor friend who sent me a great article. I want to know why we don't know and why we're not celebrating that 400 years ago, the pilgrims who were seeking religious liberty landed on this continent. Yes, they were in Jamestown already, but that was an economic endeavor. And it wasn't the real reason for the founding of this country. You know, Revelation talks about the earth swallowing up the water. In other words, a place was made, this sanctuary for a new society, one that would allow freedom. How come you don't know this? You don't know it because those who hold the control over the messaging in this society don't want you celebrating this narrative of American history. And I want you to stop and think about this. If you don't understand the narrative of this nation and you're not celebrating its significant events, you can embrace a new narrative. And if you're taking from your devices all the different things that you'd like to know and you're not bothering to seek out a few of the old ways and understand them, you could find yourself as ignorant as Belshazzar was on the night of the final fling. The truth of the matter is, is that there are all kinds of opportunities in the history of this country where there's been an attempt to create a form of ignorance. There was a man who published a book a long time ago called The Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Rearing. It was a bestseller. He was a pediatrician. Some of you know his name. His name was what, doctor? He was Dr. Spock. We come upon a moment, not the one that some of you used to think of with the pointy ears, all right? This is a different Dr. Spock, all right? But it was now time for a new form of child rearing. And if you believe that Britannica has any real value as a reference point, it says that the book was written to basically combat the rigid pediatric doctrines of his day. So it appeared that how children had been raised for generations wasn't quite good enough for the new generation that needed to question authority. And by the way, for all of you that are of that generation of which I am not, praise the Lord, you should only suspect that when the, the, uh, when the mantra is question authority, whose authority is going to be questioned first, by the way? The parents. And if you can undo the authority of the parents, you can totally unravel a society. I was listening to Catholic radio as I was driving across the Great Plains of North Dakota 
And there was a gentleman that they had on. Quite an interesting encounter. I'm not recommending the book because I haven't looked at it. But the title of the book did get my attention. He's a psychologist, a Catholic psychologist. His name's Dr. Ray. And this is the book he's written. Raising Upright Kids in an Upside-Down World, colon, Define the Anti-Parent Culture. Now, I want you to think about it. The name of the book distills the dynamic of the age we're in. We have decided to throw off the wisdom of the ages and the sages and embrace the new data which can be collected over a lifetime and experiment over a generation. And thus we find ourselves perilously close to the same kind of postmodern arrogance that's built on the same kind of ignorance that puts us in the same moment of almost judgment. Yes, if you can create ignorance, which leads to blindness, you can do all kinds of things. So how do you get to where 23 years from the death of the greatest king perhaps ever on the face of the planet, you can have the most foolish one who's about to dump the kingdom into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. Wealth, privilege, and pleasure are very poor educators. Listen to me carefully. Wealth, privilege, and pleasure are very poor indicators. And if you add to that some sensuality, and I don't mean just of the immoral type, I just mean the constant desire to be entertained. If you add some sensuality to wealth, privilege, and ease, if you do those things, pretty soon you can create a generation that feels superior in every way, but it can be in a form of ignorance and blindness. Now, I want to hit the pause button. In my reading of this Bible, there is no record of God intervening in Belshazzar's life like he did in Nebuchadnezzar's. And I want to ask you why. Did God not love Belshazzar? Did God not care about the next king? Had he no interest? Or was he only waiting to watch the dominoes of prophecy fall? And it doesn't matter who else is in the way. Just let Belshazzar get run over by time in history. Could that hardly be so? Does God not care for the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar as much as he cares for Nebuchadnezzar? Come on, think about this. So here's the question I have for you. If God really cares about Belshazzar the way he cares about Nebuchadnezzar, then how was Belshazzar to learn the lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned? He was to learn them from his grandpa. Now, I want you to think about the ramifications of that statement for the well-being of the generation we're raising and the society that's all around us. If ever there's been a question authority dynamic in America, it's been in the last 60 years. If ever there's been an absolute, almost mechanized, and if, if I believed and I do at some level. The Bible teaches us about a grand conspiracy. Of course, that conspiracy is the unraveling of the American experience. But if there has ever been a time in which society has sought to drive a wedge between the generations, it's now. And somehow we think that in our ability to put our arms around empirical science and collect data, we've gathered more wisdom than all the sages of the ages who've had it handed down through the years. When I held my first little baby in my arms 30 years ago, 
I had to make a decision. Where was I going to get the information to raise this child? He would have two other brothers that follow and finally a daughter or a sister, my daughter. And the truth of the matter is, with that little baby, that little miracle falling asleep on my chest in Memorial Hospital in South Bend, I had to make a decision. How was I going to raise this baby? And I want to tell you, I landed on the right side. I decided that the wisdom of my mother checked and, and, and filtered through the power of the Bible and the writings of the spirit of prophecy was the collective wisdom of millennia passed down through people who had lived life so that my mother, who was raised by her mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother, which is as far back as any connection I have with living people, that their collective wisdom, wisdom that comes not from a book or a device, but actually was was the oral tradition of the, the, the synthesizing of societies, especially in successful societies, that, that collective wisdom was worth more to me than the newest smart guy with the slick title on the front of a glossy covered book. Yes, indeed, the common sense book to baby care and child care, which was written against the rigid pediatric uh, habits and practices of the 19. 40s and 50s and those beyond. It was written in direct contradistinction, contradiction too. So many of the principles that have been built on the fabric of a religious Christian society. So where are you at today, friends? Are your parents in your way when they enter the circle, the sphere of your being? Are, are, your, are the grandparents in your life people who are largely irrelevant. I'm here to suggest to you today for Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's experience was the lesson. It was the pedagogy of humility. If he would have taken advantage of learning it from a previous generation, he would have had what God gave him. But in rejecting it and in embracing the wisdom of the fools of his own generation, he chose instead to bring judgment down on himself, which is exactly where we're headed. Ignorance in the realm of morality will lead to arrogance. And that arrogance will lead to defiance, which is why when he was half soused, he called for the vessels from the temple, which his papa and his grandpapa never dared get out for any kind of celebrating. And in the moment that he's drinking, Spirit of Prophecy tells us in Prophets and Kings, he is the leader of this orgy. In the middle of that experience, the hand appears on the wall. In the midst of it all, if he simply would have remembered to honor his father and his mother, he would have been saved, perhaps, from being the one to bring not only the party, but the walls down. Yes, it's natural for young people to always want to cast off the restraints of the previous generation, especially if they grew up privileged and wealthy, enjoying pleasure, especially if affluence was the cultural uh, experience of the day. Postmodern societies create their own lies that are built on ignorance. The lie that this city was unconquerable was about to be known. It was their truth. It was their own truth. Now, I want, I want to show you part of how this has developed. We have found ourselves so busy discovering new things that we have forgotten the old. 
And I'd like to suggest to you today that the modern we pluck its fruit when we actually put the fruit in the hands of our children. This is its primary uses for immorality. There is a time of supposed existence is that functionality and health and well-being are dynamics of law. In the effort of inertia of past days, in other words, to a stop once the engine is no longer fueled by the morality of God's Word. This is where we're at. On the face of the planet... And I not only am, will, I will be waiting, although it'll be too late, for the statistical analysis 10 or 20 years from now, but I'm getting it already. I pastored for 20 years at an academy church. And it breaks my heart when people who have barely been married are already divorcing. And I'll tell you the cause. It's the human heart run amok without accountability. It's the human heart without foundation for a future life. It's the human heart, unrestrained and unfettered, that kills love. The Bible says because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. And while none of us like to have somebody put the brakes on what we're doing or what we're thinking or where we're headed, it's the safeguard. It's the way rebuke and reproof. But the arrogant cast this off. They actually suggest insulterly that you have no right in their life. Of course, this is not true. This combined ignorance and arrogance leads to a resiliency, a Teflon sort of person. Chapter 5 today is that not everybody was invited to the party. Praise the Lord, Daniel didn't get an invite. And if he did, praise the Lord, he didn't go. The truth of the matter is, I highly suspect there was no invitation in Boston. Gold foil slid under his Babylonian apartment. The truth of the matter was Daniel would like to have been forgotten and it would have been better in many minds if the God of Nebuchadnezzar never showed up again to harper the ha- to uh, limit the happiness of Babylonian festival society but Daniel is called. The other person who wasn't invited is God. Listen to this from Prophets and Kings. Little did Belshazzar think there was a heavenly witness to his idolatrous revelry that a divine watcher, unrecognized, looked upon the scene of profanity, heard the sacrilegious mirth, beheld the idolatry. But soon the invited guest, capital G, made his present felt. Listen, train your kids, prepare your own minds, that you will be killer sands of a new society. Don't be surprised. Everybody wants you. There's probably a problem. But if there's elements of your life that stand apart from this society, marginalization and ostracization is probably what you should expect. But I'm here to tell you, friends, it's all going to go on its head. And what's going to happen at that point in time is we're going to see an ascendancy of a new focus on things of spiritual nature. I would like to say God, but I hardly think that will be the case. It will be a false revival that precedes the outpouring of the hold one of those golden bowls. The fiery letters are written on the wall. Now, it's absolutely certain for this kind of judgment to take place that Belshazzar had to know something. God doesn't hold you accountable for things you don't know. Now, willful ignorance, on the other hand, and I do need to take a minute to talk about this, willful ignorance, on the other hand, is a different beast. So refuse to let it be my enemy. People, they don't like to hear me preach because they think I constantly rail on these. The problem is brought into our life out of which the enemy comes and occupies. When I look at my home screen, 
I'm thankful for that Bible app that's on there, and I'm thankful for my hymnal that's on there, and I'm thankful for the Ellen G. White app that's on there. Friends, do you understand? You better spend a little bit less time to lead to arrogance, which will lead to defiance, which will lead to judgment, which is eternal loss. You can't have the writings of Ellen White, the spirit of prophecy, a manifestation of it, You cannot have these things but never read them and expect that somehow you won't catch the spiritual diseases of Belshazzar is what matters most and then use these to fill in the places where they serve well but never... Listen, the party's almost over. Patriarch or Prophets and Kings 524, where but a few moments before had been hilarity and blasphemous witticism. If you're watching TV between 6 and 10, that's what you're watching. If you've got your subscription to Netflix and you can watch your favorite shows, even if some of them are 20 and 30 and 40 years old, you're still watching some of the same stuff. What I was surprised by when I read Prophets and Kings was the degree of rebuke that Daniel delivered. You don't capture it all in the Bible. I want to read a little commentary to you here from the pen of inspiration. He spoke of Nebuchadnezzar's sin and fall. There's the history. You know, he was seven years a beast. And of the Lord's dealings with him, The dominion and glory bestowed upon him, the divine judgment for his pride and the subsequent acknowledgement of the powers and the mercy of the God of Israel. That part's in the Bible. Then, in bold and emphatic words, he rebuked. Can you imagine a church full of a thousand people who didn't want the preacher to show up because everything they were doing was all wrong, and the preacher shows up and they get a sermon or a sermonette in bold and emphatic words. If the handwriting hadn't been on the wall, he would have been ridden out of Babylon on a rail, delivered to the Medes and the Persians. But God had opened the door and created the way, and he had their attention. Bold and emphatic were the words. He rebuked Belshazzar for his great wickedness. He held the king's sin up before him, showing him the lessons he might have learned, but he did not. Belshazzar had not read aright the experience of his grandfather. Oh, man, if these words aren't dripping with meaning for today. I'm going to read it again. Belshazzar had not read aright the experience of his grandfather. What's that mean? That means he read it wrong. How many times have I heard children critiquing their parents? They think they got their parents all figured out. Like somehow when they arrive at the other side of parenting, they will have done it absolutely wonderful, perfect. They can write the new book instead of Dr. Spock. How many young people in ignorance and arrogance, only only trained by wealth and pleasure and ease, how many have looked back at the humble lives of their parents and read the whole thing wrong? I can remember before telling my own kids, you don't even know me. We haven't gone on to the vaccination for the apocalypse, but I'm going to tell you, it's super duper important. Yes, how many young people have read the experience of their parents or grandparents exactly 
the wrong way, and they don't heed the warning events. The opportunity of knowing and obeying the true God had been given to him, Belshazzar, but had not been taken to heart, and he was about to reap the consequences of his rebellion. Because of the strange perversity of the human heart, God had at last found it necessary to pass the irrevocable sentence. Belshazzar was to fall, and his kingdom was to pass into other hands. One more paragraph. Every nation that has come upon the stage of action, including this one, has been permitted to occupy its place on earth, that the fact might be determined whether it would fulfill the purposes of the Watcher, capital W, and the Holy One. Prophecy has traced the rise and the progress of the world's great empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. With each of these, as with the nations of less power, history has repeated itself. Each has had its periods of test. Each has failed. Its glory has faded. Its power departed. 400 years ago, on December 18, 1620, the prophetic roots of a prophesied nation with a Protestant foundation was begun. How come you don't know? And it's time for us to quit rewriting. Some people who listen to this sermon are going to be very frustrated with the preacher. Because supposedly, that journey of religious liberty is not the preeminent reason. But really, what should we be celebrating is a different kind of original sin, which I'll suggest to you is indeed a sin of this nation. But the idea that we rewrite the history and that this component of suffering, and somehow we elevate every generation supposedly to our new level of morality... And we impugn those who at great sacrifice, even death itself, established the greatest nation of modern history that protects liberty and life and gives the chance to have a pursuit of happiness. All right, so let's get on to the vaccination. Pretty painful description of a Babylonian postmodern society. So what is the vaccination? If I told you today, you could walk in such a way that you wouldn't be sucked into the fear-mongering of the conspiratist, and you wouldn't look down your nose at the wisdom of those who have gone a generation or two before you over the path of life. In other words, it wouldn't be pride that I know better. I'm picking from the technological tree of life. I've got my arms around more information than my parents have ever had. Ha, ha. You've got your arms around more data, how much of it is good for anything, and how much of it is construed to misconstrue. Fear? Got to constantly be on the inside track, so I'm ahead of the people out to get me. Or pride? I don't want anything to do with those people, those old fogies. They're in the fast lane, and everybody knows that you need to move over and get out of the way for progress. If I told you there was a way you could walk, that would make you safe from repeating the blind and willful ignorance and arrogance and defiance of Belshazzar, would you be interested? Well, there is. And unfortunately, it's nothing new. Prophets and Kings, page 529. 
The prophet, Daniel, first reminded Belshazzar of matters which he was familiar, but which had not taught him, here we go, get ready, you can take this vaccination. Yes, I know more than half of Americans don't even want a vaccination. But this is one you need because the spiritual diseases around you are infectious beyond degree. The prophet reminded Belshazzar of matters with which he was familiar, but which had not taught him the lesson of humility that might have saved him. Yes, friends, we can hear prophet Micah calling out, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Can anybody tell you you're wrong? Are you close enough to anybody to where they could actually bump into your zone of existence and not upset your fragile ego? Are the relationships you forged with people deep enough to where somebody could love you enough to say, hey, what are you doing? Hey, you're wrong. Hey, dislike me, but get over it because nobody loves you enough to make you mad like me. Hey, judgment's just around the corner. Do you see, friends? Stephen Eccles who's specializing in elements of addiction, not only in his education, but also out of his personal life. He was for years an alcoholic. He's one of our elders. He said in a staff meeting the other day, he said something really powerful. He said, they say the opposite of addiction is connection. I want you to think about it. We live in the most addicted age of American history. If you want to be free, your life is going to have to be infused with the love of Christ shared through the love of the brothers and the sisters. God is looking at this moment to take the fabric which not only has the power to deliver you from wrong attachments in society, but to deliver you through right attachments that will call you back to the narrow way in which humility, because you actually have semblance of self-image that's based on real love from other people and from God, not self-love that comes from patting yourself on the shoulder here and on the shoulder here. My mother used to say to me, don't break your arm patting yourself on the shoulder. I don't think that's the esteemism of Dr. Spock's book. But it was necessary for an arrogant adolescent to hear the words. Some of those rigid pediatric methodologies were utilized in my home. But I never, never in my whole life doubted my mother's love. How did she pull this off? Somehow she saved me, and I grew up in a less dangerous spiritual era. She saved me from the idea that somehow the world revolved around Ronnie. Now, most people don't call me Ronnie anymore. Little Ronnie, because I'm a junior. So I asked myself a question at the end of this sermon. Why in the world did God send Daniel just a few hours before the execution? Well, you say, well, it's for you and me. Really? Daniel needed to show up for you and me? 
Wouldn't it have been enough to just read in the chapter that there's this great party going on? And they, they got out the vessels from the temple, the holy vessels, dedicated for only the service of God. And that very night, judgment came down. Why not just that? Why does God send a prophet to confront them? worth thinking about. I'll tell you what I think. Because even in the midst of a drunken orgy with over a thousand people, God's goal is still redemption. And we don't know how many people were there who were being sucked into the social elitism of postmodern thought, especially the wealthy cream of the crop, the educated cream of the crop, In my mind, right to the very end, God plans to redeem some of the partygoers who will hear the rebuke and return to the simple, narrow way. Friends, if there is a spiritual pandemic that is circling the globe, it is the arrogancy of our age. It is the willful neglect of the generations that have gone before us. It is the idea that I know better than everybody else, especially the generations that raised me or raised my parents. We better stop and think twice lest we find ourselves reading the biographies of our parents and our grandparents the wrong way. Lest pride and self-importance twist the storyline and leave us confused about the issues of eternal life. Could we be humble before God? Are we any better than our fathers? Isn't this the cry of Elijah as he's running away? Let me die. I'm no better than my fathers. None of us are. But we're loved every bit as much. I'm inviting you this morning, friends. There is a war on. It's an information war. The history is trying to be rewritten. You should have known that we should be celebrating four centuries of God's opening up the earth to swallow the flood that came out to destroy those who live by conscience in the Word of God. But nobody's talking about it because religion stands in the way, true religion. And of course, politicized religion stands in the way too, it appears. May God help us. Judgment will come to an end. The party has begun. God is calling us to live the most noble, dignified, credible lives and to speak where we should speak. Be quiet if your life's not been credible. Be quiet if you made it easy to be discounted. But go to your knees, ask God to guide you, and may you fulfill your God-given role while you have breath of both body and mind. And may the generations that are here rise up and call the gray head found in the way of righteousness blessed. May God favor our seniors. I pray that it'll make them all like Caleb and Joshua, strong and vital into their old age. And may this be a place where across the generations, not the dividing of the generations, we see the happiness, the health, and the vitality. The lesson of Nebuchadnezzar is a lesson for all of us. God is able to humble the proud. Last thing, the other day I was somewhere with a group of people and they talked about pride 
and God humbling them. I said, look, I don't pray for God to humble me. I pray, God, help me get out in front of the curve and humble myself. I don't want to have to be humbled. May God help each one of us to realize on the path to the new kingdom, the feet of generations before us are often filled with hearts of love, the wisdom that we need to go there. May we not be fooled by this rapid increase of information, and may we focus on what matters most. May God, may God vaccinate us with this humility so that we can walk all the way through the end-time events of the apocalypse and see His face. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.